Welcome to the Impactful Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Clark. For the last decade, I've had the privilege of learning from impactful leaders across the globe through my service in the Peace Corps and nonprofits. Their leadership has inspired me to highlight those among us who are truly impacting our world so that we may learn from them and be more impactful together. Yes, leadership can be learned. The guests on our show are providing direction, inspiration, and leading the way in their business and community through service. Are you ready to have an impact? Welcome to the Impactful Leaders Podcast. So welcome, Charbel. Thank you for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. So for those listening, Charbel is the founding executive of the Georgia First Generation Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization that's primarily based out of the Gwinnett Gwinnett County area of Georgia. He's an incredibly active member in the Gwinnett County community. He's an ambassador to the chamber, Gwinnett Young Professionals 35 under 35, recently at Georgia State University 40 under 40, which then motivated me to reach out and say, I finally had to get you on. And then you're also studying (laughs) pharmacy as well. So I'm like, it always blows my mind how connected you are with people, how you're all over the place. And then you're running a nonprofit, you're part of the chamber and you're studying pharmacy. It's like, how the heck are you balancing all this out? It, one of my professors makes fun of me for saying this, but she says, Charbel, you're most comfortable when you're in the most uncomfortable environments. And I'm like, that is very true. You never see me unless I'm in the most uncomfortable settings. And it just goes to show that there's there's a sense of, it's more about the attitude and not the aptitude. You know, I'm more about bringing in the positivity and bringing in the community as opposed to being the smart one in the room. So I'm thrilled about that. Attitude, not about aptitude, not about attitude, or the other way around. Aptitude. Uh, I take notes because when you drop little nuggets, I like using them as like, oh, it's <laughs> after on, I'll tag you in them. But uh, why do you think that is? Why do you think you find yourself more comfortable doing well, like in those uncomfortable situations? You know what's you know what's funny is that I was not the kind of person to put myself in these situations at first. And I think when you think about this idea of first gen and being the first in the family and doing all these sorts of things where you are already in a setting that is unlike any setting you're you're ever in. I mean, we're talking about me being the first to graduate high school. You're going from a small community of a couple hundred in a high school to a school like Georgia State in undergrad, where it's over 35, 45,000 people, you know, you're already in uncharted waters from the get-go. Yeah. And that was the, the slap in the face realization that, you know, you have to step up to where you're going to. You have to put yourself in that position to where, if not you, then who, right? So building that sense of confidence over the years, I've come to realize that I can make a positive impact in the community, in the lives of others, whether it is with the nonprofit, whether it is with the work that I do in the healthcare setting and give others the emotion that they're being heard, they're being seen and they're being impacted because of this work. Mm. And I think because of that, it's made me 
more of an effective communicator. It's made me more passionate about the work that I do from both the advocacy side and from the healthcare side. And it's just made me more, I guess, turned to in situations like this. Like, I love you to death, my man. But in situations to where, oh, I'm just going to randomly go on a podcast and talk about, you know, God knows what. Uh, we don't get to do that. So it's, it's, it's just a happy medium at that point. Yeah. So for those that don't know, the uh, Georgia First Generation Foundation is to help um, high school students who can't or are having a harder time obtaining a college education without certain resources. Can you give more information exactly about what the nonprofit is that you started and maybe how you came up with the idea to even get it started? For sure, for sure. Um, Believe it or not, I was a sophomore in college when a business competition was being presented at the schools, at the business school at, at Georgia State. And we were curious, we applied, and we got to a point in the competition to where we turned this business pitch into a student club at Georgia State. And what was really impactful and what was really, I guess, inspiring at the time was that there weren't many groups that were focused on supporting people who were the first in their families to go into college. And I myself being one of those students was, well, I was fortunate to have the grades, to have the community work that I did in high school, you know, and to apply and receive scholarships that helped pay for my education. But I wish others knew of the same thing. And that was the whole idea of the student club was to connect high school students, specifically in the high schools that we graduated from and connect them to Georgia State and show them what was the path to to get there. And graduating college, very, you know, emotional moment for me. It was a realization that, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did this. But then others were so impacted by this movement you know, universities were noticing, why don't we have these initiatives? Uh, schools like Georgia State now having actual student success centers and uh, first-generation programs and initiatives and positions. It, it lines up to the fact that this student club turned into a nonprofit out of the sheer moment of needing more advocates to advocate, not just at that one university, but across the state. And when you look at how the timeline of the nonprofit roles compared to so many other nonprofits, we line up with the first gen movement, which is absolutely insane to to think about. And dang it, if I'm going to claim it on this podcast, I'll claim it. But I think I was one of the starters of this first gen movement, just, just in spite of the fact of getting students motivated you know? And since we finally became a nonprofit, we targeted more high schools. We're getting more community members involved. We're slowly getting, you know, the funding and the initiatives in place to where we can start making these lasting changes. And we're at a point to where we can start motivating college students to complete their education, but to also give back and support high school students who just like them yeah. needed that big brother, big sister sort of mentor to uh, push them forward. How do you, 
I think that there's a lot of people out there who have good ideas and have their heart in the right place for wanting to start a nonprofit. Absolutely. But once you start it, because you've been going since 2016, right? It yes. 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 Um, 2016 is. So you're coming up on 10 years. How do you find that momentum to keep you going for that long? Because I think a few things that happen is one, people either falter from their mission or like things change. They get burnt out emotionally. They get burnt out, like maybe physically too, because you're doing all this work. It's not even the emotional toll that it's pulling on you, seeing some of this stuff. Like right. how do you I, find yourself to, what advice would you have someone to decide, okay, should I start this nonprofit or not? And then how are you keeping yourself going? I never thought I would start a nonprofit at the age <laughs> of 21. That's the first thing you have to realize, right? Never in a million years would I tell someone start a nonprofit at age 21. That's, you have to have the balance for that. And then secondly, I was in a dual degree medical program, right? Like I'm trying to get my master's, get my pharmacy degree. And this is still on top of doing the nonprofit stuff. So again, never in a million years would I tell someone to start that. However, here's the reason why you start one. If you have the voice and if you have the passion for this advocacy work, and you realize that there isn't something in your community or in your setting that isn't already pushing this envelope to what you're advocating for, it goes back to that saying, if not you, then who, right? Mm -hmm. So it was difficult to start out at first. I mean, I was going in very blindsided because I didn't know what steps had to be taken. I didn't know that there was so much behind the scenes paperwork involved. I didn't know that when you build this momentum, it's because you have to find the right people to build this network. Yeah. The, 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 the saying of that your network is your net worth and, and knowing that the nonprofit is as successful as it is today because of colleagues at the Chamber of Commerce. It's because of the educators and the counselors that we get to go back from, you know, year after year. Because at the end of the day, we're, as our motto says, we're helping the first generation become the next generation. And it isn't something that you can do within a year. You don't build a first-gen movement and make next-generation leaders in the course of five, 10 years. Mm -hmm. This is a movement that moves beyond that. And I think that when you instill that confidence and you instill that motivation, hopefully this nonprofit withstands the test of time. But knowing that I was a part of, you know, I think one of the greatest moments that I've had within the last couple of years was an opportunity to speak with the Rowan Foundation and actually be a presenter at their first, what they call State of the Rowan, which is... Think of it like a state of the union before this organization. And the Rowan Foundation is basically building a knowledge community within Gwinnett County. Think of it like North Carolina's research triangle, but in Gwinnett County. So it's big. You're combining education with agriculture and uh, the biomedical sciences, and you're building an actual research. Yeah, it's pretty big. And... They wanted to talk about the future of education and how education is vital 
to how this research community can cultivate once it, if you will, it is finally completed. Because it will take years for this research community to be built out and fully fleshed out. And they would invite, you know, the, the initial plan was to invite other, you know, college students to come and speak about how the future of education is. And the same professor uh, that bragged about me earlier on when we talked uh, was also the same professor that serves on this, I guess, steering committee. And she goes, well, I know a student who's doing work in Gwinnett County that's literally shaping the future of education in the county. And I got to give a few minutes worth of what I call the future of education in Gwinnett in front of when I say state and local uh, government officials to people who work at these big companies that are heavily involved and being, again, the most uncomfortable and the most out of place in an environment is where I guess I thrive the most in, in that sort of regard. Because it goes to show that this edu education motivation means more when you have passionate folks at the back end pushing it forward. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot. And finding the time to juggle that is, is harder too. So advocacy is something that I never thought that I can put under my belt. And I'm proud to say that I can do that now. What do you do? Like, what are some of the things that keep you, how do you prevent that emotional, physical burnout that happens with doing this sort of work? Because you see, I'm sure you see students fall through the cracks or you see someone get close and then the system fails them. And then thing after thing after thing, it can wear you down to a point where it's like, no matter how much you love it or you push for it, it can just completely destroy everything. Like, how do you make sure that you're taking care of yourself? Like, what are some of those tips that you would give people who are going through that possibly? I think the greatest thing I've ever done is become super, I guess, hyper-focused on building out a schedule that works well with me. Um, I'm, I'm in a point in my personal life and in my professional life to where after nine, 10 o'clock, I'm not focusing on school. I'm not focusing on nonprofit things. I'm giving myself the chance to, to breathe, to decompress and to sort of take time for myself and, and sort of relax at home. For the average student, they'll think I'm crazy. I should be pulling all-nighters. I should be looking at material as crazy as I can. But for me, the retention of that material, even in a student setting, you can't work. The brain has to rest. The body has to rest. Mm -hmm. The soul has to rest just so you can get back up and do it all over again the next day. And I'm also hyper-focused on building up the schedule to the point to where, I, I mean, it's a color-coded, we're type A, if it's not on the calendar, it ain't happening sort of thing. <laughs> and I tell that joke, <laughs> I tell that joke and it's kind of scary. And I think you could probably relate to this too. It's, it really is, you plan out so much and in such a long period of time that you don't realize that you're doing so many things. Yeah. 
And when you're at that point to where, oh, I actually have some free time here, 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 I may be juggling a lot, but I think it's a situation to where it's not that I juggle a lot, it's that I have a stronger time management skill than the average person. And though that makes it sound like, oh, that means you can take on more work. No, 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 because you have to be able to say no. And I've been getting better at that because again, I'm too nice and apparently don't say no enough, but it, you, you can get to that point to where you'll be okay managing time and finding time for yourself if you make sure that's a priority, you know? So time management, I think, is the biggest thing when you when you want to do nonprofit work. It's it's a situation to where if you're not putting, if you don't know that you have to schedule time for yourself, or if you're having to force yourself to schedule time for yourself, then you're not doing it right. I can already tell you that from the get-go. Making time for yourself should already be already in the schedule. If you're having to work your way around finding time to get groceries. And I mean, I've seen people's schedules, uh, sidetrack, but not sidetracking where they literally <laughs> put blocks of, this is where I take my lunch. This is where I go shopping at night. Oh, I have to go get clothes for a wedding that I'm going to be in coming up. So I got to make sure I block out this time. I'm like, you can do that. You can be very critical with that sort of scheduling. But I think when you get super anal about that, it will also reflect how your work is produced when you mm -hmm. actually have to do the work, right? So at the, end, at the end of the day, it's just a matter of knowing what is a priority for you, whether it's family, whether it's work, whether it's school, and knowing how to reflect that and prioritize that in a schedule that you build out on a daily and a weekly basis. How do you, when you're working with the students that you're working with, how do you help them learn that? Because it can be tricky trying to, you think something's a priority and it should sure. be, or it's not. Like, how do you, how I do you think pass that knowledge on? You know, what's interesting is that our nonprofit is a volunteer-based nonprofit. So no one gets paid to do the work that they do. People actually have to be passionate about the work that we do to be willing to participate, you know, as a, as a volunteer, let alone be a student in it, right? And one of the struggles that we have is that we have such a high turnover of student, of volunteers. And of course, it comes with prioritizing time to participate, right? Some people in the beginning, they're passionate. They want to come in. It's like, oh, I want to help out. I want to help build programs or, oh, I want to help, you know, fundraise and find scholarship money or even from like a marketing perspective to help build out the marketing for the, for the organization. It is a nonprofit at the end of the day, you know, whether you choose not to prioritize the time of the nonprofit with some of your other obligations, work still has to be done. And even in the student setting, just as a correlation, Students have to be able to realize that teachers are going to teach, classes are going to be taught, exams are going to be given. Now, whether you prioritize your time in studying or not is up to that individual. 
And I think students need to also realize that not every student is, I guess, inept to be successful in a class or not. You know, some students are good at math, some students are good at science, some students are good at a little bit of everything, right? Mm -hmm. Don't think that you can't set time out for studying. No student says that, oh, I don't study and I get good grades. Students that get good grades without studying are able to figure things out because they set out time to make themselves better. Whether they like it or not, and whether they admit it or not, that's what they're doing. And to teach students that is a hard skill, but I think teaching them while they're in a setting to where they can juggle the things they do in high school will make them more successful when they're going into college and beyond because of the fact that they can slowly add more to their plate and not feel so overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if people are learning at the age of 25 how to time manage as opposed to 15, when God bless, some of these high school kids nowadays are having to juggle sports and community work just so they can get into these colleges. Yeah. I mean, it's like applying, it's like applying to be the CEO of an organization. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but it's that balance that you're trying to show them. It's not so much teaching them about time management. It's sort of demonstrating that they're kind of already doing it. They just don't realize how to maximize that benefit. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. Like when I was growing up, I, <clears throat> excuse me, after speaking with my mom and some other people, it's like, I've always been somewhat networking. I just mm-hmm. didn't realize that's what the term was. Like I was always out talking to people and like trying to connect them to the right person. Right. But I guess I didn't until I started this. And then people are like, oh, you've been doing that forever. I'm like, what do you mean? I've just started. I'm like, oh, you mean anything about when you're in elementary school, you found your way into this math class and then X, Y, Z. And I'm like, so that's a good point where it's like, you don't, don't necessarily have to practice it. And then I guess, how do you show them and not necessarily teach the power of saying no? Because especially mm-hmm. when I can get, I'm assuming here, So correct me if I'm wrong, but being a first generation, you're trying to make it into college and all these things. I can, my guess would be someone would be more likely to say yes to something because they know there's a possibility that it could help them sometime in the future. You know, like there's a number of different things where, especially if you're trying so hard to get somewhere because you know the outcome will be beneficial. How do you, in those situations, help show them how to say no? And then how did you learn it too? I learned it. Be, I learned it by saying yes, and then not being able to take on that project. I think the power of experience and the ability to say, the ability to take on work, realize that it's hard to do that work on top of the many other obligations that you have, and then having to step back from it. Mm-hmm. I think students and those feel worse having to step back from something that they initially took on because they feel like they failed not only themselves, but others by stepping back. And what's even worse is as those who are first gen, a lot of the times we feel that we have to take this on, take on family obligations, take on other responsibilities, because if we don't, then we're letting people down. Yeah. 
And I think that emotion steers a lot of the reasons why we take on more than we should or that we don't say no enough because of our fear that, well, if, if almost like a sense of image, you know, I have to present myself in a way that's making my family look good. That's, you know, making my fam my parents proud. That's this, that, and the other. And so much so of building up this image, it's more so presenting yourself in a way that makes others look at you as if you're doing it, mm -hmm. right? Almost the, uh, the subtle modesty and the, the, the attraction of making yourself look good, even though you're suffering on the inside. That was me in college. I felt like I had to take on these things because I had to show my younger siblings, my family overseas, and you know, friends and family like, no, I'm going to do the dang thing, and I'm going to do as much as I can because I want to prove to others that I can. And I may not showed that I was struggling when I was in college, but looking back on it now, I was definitely eternally hurt, like internally hurt by the work that I was taking on. If I were to have redone everything again, I probably would have focused on not taking on so much, but being better at some of the few things that I was taking on. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. uh, we, we talk about how in friendships and the networking aspect, there's a difference between having a hundred pennies and four quarters, right? It's not so much, can I take on all this work and still be successful, but each thing that I'm doing have little to no worth towards me and the community or me and the work that I do, or more so, oh, I'm just focused on these two, three things. But because they're quarters, because they're dollars, the value there is so much more. The value to me, the value to others is there, right? So if we were to put this in a context of saying no, I'm saying no now because I want to make sure that what I take on puts value and instills value in others. So, yeah. I like that answer. I haven't heard that example of the pennies to quarters, but it really does yeah. add up. I mean, you're doing all of these things. And at the end of the day, like that's how you lead to burnout too. Right. You're, you're, you're not wrong. I mean, every medical student is going to feel burnout. And I think <laughs> I have a good, there's no, deny, there's no denying it. We, they use this, they orientation day. They say, you're going to be given information as if it was water from a fire hydrant. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is drink it. But if water is being shot at you at the speed, the velocity, and like the sheer power of water from a fire hose from a fire hydrant, it's a lot. How the heck are you going to drink it all? Yeah, it hurts. It, yeah, of course it does. So when do you realize that I think for me, yes, there's burnout, but what I value is that I know that there is a destination that I'm getting to, and I'm letting my aspiration 
determine that distant destination, mm -hmm. right? So I know that I want to be a healthcare educator. I want to teach doctors how to be doctors. Not many people can say it like that, right? Teaching doctors how to be doctors. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, we need that. We need educators to better the future of our healthcare system. We need better educators to help give students that passion and desire to pursue these healthcare settings. I mean, there's there's a shortage of pharmacists right now. I mean, I can we can have a whole entire conversation about that, but it it, it goes to show that people who are determined to be in these roles make those destinations those, their goals. And if you are passionate about being there, overcoming that burnout means knowing how to practice self-care. And I definitely experienced burnout in high school. I've definitely experienced burnout in college and even in my medical program. Mm -hmm. But I will have to say that I knew how to internalize the burnout now as a medical student and turn that into something that makes me more successful in the long run. And I've realized that I did have a job a lot. I've had a lot of setbacks in med school, you know, with my own health reasons and the health of my family members and, you know, and things come up unexpectedly. But knowing how you don't use that as a crutch to put you back in place, but more so as a stepping stone to get you further to that destination, I think is what makes burning out less, more like a first degree burn as opposed to a third degree burn. You know, like you're still going to feel it whether you like it or not. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's, it, it's something that you can recover from, if you will. I know I, it, that saying that, yes, you're going to burn out, but you can recover <laughs> from a burn. Not something that you would say, but no, I'm going to tell you that lots of people burn out together, right? Yeah. If you have the community and you have the friends and the colleagues that know that you're going to suffer together, if you will, uh, it you you know that you'll get to the restoration at your end. Just don't do it alone. I think, I think that's I think that's where you have to realize that you you should not do it alone. You could not do it alone, and you won't do it alone. Yeah, and then that kind of leads to kind of where I wanted to turn this to. I don't know if you'll be fully open to it. This will release after you give your presentation with the Gwinnett leadership uh, thing as well. But you're talking about like doing it with people, being in a team. And on Wednesday, you're going to speak about team dysfunction. Yes, believe it or not. Like it's kind of, it's kind of... when you're Go working ahead. on a team and you have some people doing burnout and like, I'm sure that can lead to some dysfunction. Like, can you share a little bit about what you're going to speak about on, on Wednesday? So there is a book, Patrick, oh, I'm going to butcher his last name, Leon, Leoncini, <laughs> I think is how but it is an author. He's a great, he's a great leadership guru for those that are in the leadership space. And he talks about the five dysfunctions of the team. There are five different things that serve as barriers to having successful team dynamics. And the very, very first thing that he talks about is that 
The first dysfunction in team dynamics is the absence of trust. We're going to talk a lot about this in the workshop on Wednesday, but to sort of summarize it, without trust, you are not able to go towards barrier two, three, four, and five. Anytime that trust is broken, even if you get to steps four and five, the second that that trust disappears, you now take steps back and you got to go back to square one. You have to recognize that in the environment that you're in, there's a sense of vulnerability that has to be displayed. You have to be able to be vulnerable to the coworkers that you're with. Leaders tend not to be vulnerable because they think it's a sign of weakness, but it's on the opposite side. Vulnerability is the, is the soul of wit. It's, it's one of those things that you can take as the strength to push you forward. It's, it's the way that you can present yourself of, yeah, I may be struggling. Yeah, I may have some things that make me uncomfortable. Yeah, this is my vulnerable side. But realize that if I can be vulnerable to the people that I lead, then my team members can be just as vulnerable and we can work through it together and push forward. Because once we tackle on this trust, we can you know, focus on the conflicts that may be within the team and the commitments that we have to make and the results that we then have to produce. You know, it's going step by step by step. And once you build on this trust, you can focus on working on the conflicts that may arise since everyone can trust one another. If we can find ways to, you know, overcome these conflicts, we can then get to this sense of accountability and building accountability with one another. Once we can keep ourselves accountable, we can then commit to the things that we're saying and that we're accountable for. Once we can build these commitments, we then do what's the point of a team. And I can't believe I'm going to do this. I don't know if it's ever been done before, but Andrew, I'm going to ask you a question. <laughs> okay. What's, what's the point of a team? I'm trying in some to of the in, in some of the most layman terms, why do you have a team in an organization? To work together towards a goal. To work, work together towards a goal to make a result. Yeah. If I can't have trust, and if I can't overcome my conflicts, if I can't keep people accountable, and if I can't commit to the things that I say that I do, how the heck am I going to get results? And that right there are the five dysfunctions of a team. Mm. But it also starts out with trust. It's literally like a pyramid. You take out that foundation, the pyramid crumbles. Yeah, because the other thing is, it's like when you start working with someone, you kind of, I think sometimes people are thinking, if that trust isn't there, is this person trying to, like, what's their objective? What are they trying to accomplish? Do they have some ulterior motive that's going to do harm to me? Like, I think those things sometimes start penetrating people's minds when you're working with someone. And it's like, oh, they're just trying to get the promotion. So they're going to do anything they can to put me down or take my work and make it look like it's theirs. Whereas if you have that trust that isn't going to happen as much, well, it shouldn't happen at all. But And what's funnier is we talk about the self, the self-motivation to promote ourselves within an organization and how that can in turn be reflective of almost like an arrogance mm -hmm. and, a, and a, a 
way of saying that if I'm going to better myself, it could be to the detriment of others. And believe it or not, that's one of the things in accountability that we that you focus on. That's like, I think the third or the fourth uh, dysfunction where everyone has to understand the roles that they have within the team. You know, we've overcome the, you know, we've overcome the trust. We overcome the conflicts that we have. Now we, we know that there's an accountability aspect. We have to understand that everyone plays a unique role and we have to set aside our differences in order to make sure that we can move forward as a team. And that does include having to say and forego this, oh, I'm not going to focus on, you know, the promotion. I'm going to make sure that we can get the result. Because at the end of the day, people are only going to be promoted if they can produce the result. Why am I going to be so hung-go about trying to get a promotion if those leaders that are in charge of your promotion only want to see the results, you know? And I guess another thing you have to think about as well is your manager isn't a part of a team, you know, is a part of their own team, yeah. right? So this is something that always perplexes me. Where, where do you prioritize being the leader of a team or where do you prioritize being the member of a team, right? So for me, in like my role as an executive director, I manage a team. And I'm also on a team with, you know, board of advisors. And having to flip the switch between going, you know, as an executive director and I'm trying to lead this team to, well, now I'm in a team of board of advisors, you know, I'm trying to hear out what the board of advisors have to say. And another great example is, as a pharmacy student, I sometimes have to work in a pharmacy. So there may be things where I'm helping some of the technicians, but then I'm also, you know, an intern, so I'm being supervised by a pharmacist. And having to go back and forth, where do you prioritize being the leader of a team versus being the team led by someone? So if you can find that balance or if you can know how to prioritize that, you thinking about how others are going to influence you will be out the window at that point. There's actually another leadership concept about self-deception uh, where you think about yourself being in a box and you got these barriers. So mm -hmm. when you brought up this idea of outside forces going to, you know, impede on my success and I can't get the promotion. So I got to work on this. A lot of the times you're deceiving yourself thinking that I can't move forward because there are outside forces. So you put yourself in the box. You can't, you can't see yourself out of trying to move forward because you put yourself in an environment that only you feel like you can thrive in. And remember how I first talked about my most comfortable setting is being in the most uncomfortable of environments. I've had to learn to break open from this box, you know, show a little bit of each of the sides and, and sort of break them down and break down these walls. Because I'm going to be a successful student, whether I like it or not. Um, that's the goal, right? I'm going to be able to become a doctor, 
be able to practice medicine, be able to influence others to change their lifestyles so they can be better. So why can't I make sure that I do that as well as help others, right? Mm -hmm. If I help myself, uh, what's the phrase? I can't believe I'm forgetting my own phrase. I always like to say, you have to be a little selfish in order to be selfless, right? Mm -hmm. So I can work on myself and I can make myself a better student and I can make myself a better, you know, nonprofit advocate, education advocate, whatever you want to call it. But I know that if I work on myself just a little bit, make sure I better myself, I know that my results will produce better results for others. Yeah, I like that. I'm writing. <laughs> you're good. You're good. That is, you know, that's that's great. I mean, I think that's a really important part to tell because I think specifically in the nonprofit space, if someone is being selfish there's so much negative connotation to it. They're like, why should I be receiving all these things doing X, Y, and Z? It should be this and this and this person. It's like, well, if you're able to take that and then put it, use that influence, use that resources, use that knowledge for, to infect other people. And then they go on and do their thing. Then it becomes like waterfall, like a cascade. Right. And that's where exactly. the magic happens. Oh, for sure. I... The recent under 40 and under 30 awards that I've been receiving, I think is a testament to the fact that people recognize that I'm doing good work. Mm -hmm. And I would never in a million years think that I would be in a place to say that I received these awards because of the work that I did. It's the other way around. It's because of the work that I did that I received the awards. Does that make does that sort of make sense? Yeah, yeah. I didn't get the awards because of the work. It's because of the work that I got the awards. And I think by flipping that and flipping this idea of no, because of the work that I'm doing, this is what happens. I'm taking the initiative of I am doing the work, and that is the reason stuff is happening. And it's not stuff is happening because of what I'm doing, because then that's the arrogance coming into play. Yeah. And I think when you flip that sentence and make it more active or more, I, I'm not a grammar teacher, as you know. <laughs> so whatever the semantics are, it, the, the point is, it's the work. It's, it's. You, then the work, and not work before the you, right? Like even in the dictionary, the only time you see the word work before you is in the dictionary. Besides that, you got to do work. Work mm. doesn't do you. Make sense? Okay. Yeah. I think that's what I was trying to say. That is a little <laughs> early to, to put those sort of words together, okay? I'm sorry. No, I mean, it's a good, it's a good way to kind of round up what we were talking about and just like how it all puts together. I mean, yeah. if you follow that framework, that mindset, then it'll, it will help you start your nonprofit, continue your work, whether you're starting it or being a part of it. It will help you hopefully manage the burnout a little bit. Like everything that we've talked about, that will help guide you along on an easier path. Right. Not, 
exactly. There'll be their own hiccups, but <laughs> make it a little less turbulent, I hope. For those that want to reach out to you, want to learn more about Georgia First Gen and some of the other work that you're doing, where should they reach out to you from or to? So uh, Georgia First Gen, uh, spell, spell out all the words. Um, that's where you find us on social media, on our website, on LinkedIn. Uh, believe it or not, we're hoping to relaunch our fifth season of Project Next Gen. I can't believe I'm saying that. It's actually a podcast ourselves where wherever you're listening to podcasts, you can actually listen to me and colleagues interviewing first-generation leaders in our community and about their stories and about how they're making a difference in the community. So if you haven't listened to it already, Project Next Gen, N-E-X-T-G-E-N, uh, you can find that everywhere that you uh, listen, including uh, Back the Leaders. And I still plug there. You're welcome. Yeah. Um, so that's uh, that's where you can find us. And I think another thing to mention, too, is that we have our first fundraiser coming up. And I'm really, really excited about this. It's our own benefit gala. So April 14th, it's a ticketed event. So register now if you can. We're hoping to do our own version of 40 under 40 for, uh, or under 40, I should say, for first-gen leaders in our community. So it's going to be a great award ceremony. We're going to have a great uh, dinner and a celebration of first-gen. And I think it's our first community effort and fundraiser. So uh, definitely register if you haven't already. That's awesome. No, I'm glad you were able to share that. I'll definitely make sure to include that as well. But thank you so thank much you. for your time, Shavel. I really appreciate the time and all the effort you put into Gwinnett. And I'm excited to listen to your talk with, uh, with the Young Professionals group coming up. I, I appreciate you, Andrew, and all that you're doing. And I'm so looking forward to Wednesday as well. Thank you, Shavel. I'll see you around. Awesome. Take care. Bye-bye.